Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode 34 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's question might be one of the biggest questions we can discuss. Why do bad things happen to good people? So before we get too deep, I want to point you to our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. That is a place where you can find any of the quotes we use or the scripture and uh, basically a transcript of the show. We've done one for every episode so far up to 34. There's uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 34. The 70,000 words on the website. Uh, if you have a question you want us to cover in the future, all you got to do is leave it as a comment on the website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. And I also want to encourage you to share the show on social media or by word of mouth with other people. Our goal is to get as many people as possible involved in daily Bible reading. And when you guys share episodes of the show, that does a great uh, work in getting that going. It kind of helps people to hear the word and read the word and hopefully follow the word. So thank you to all of you who've shared the show, who've reviewed it and all that kind of good stuff. So today and tomorrow, for the first time in the long and storied 34-day history of this podcast, we are going to do a two-part episode. The reason for this is we're going to grapple together with a big question that has vexed the hearts of humanity for thousands of years. Why does suffering happen? The question is quite apropos for today's Bible readings and for tomorrow's readings also, and really for the next few days or even weeks, because we're going to be in the book of Job. Today, specifically, we read Genesis 35, Job chapter 2, Mark 6, and Romans 6. In the Genesis passage, Jacob decides to follow Yahweh, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly and to put away the other idols and gods from among his entourage. Romans 6 features a beautiful theological passage about uh, becoming slaves to God and leaving behind our slavery to sin. And our two focus passages for the today, for today, which is Job chapter 2 and Mark chapter 6, we see a couple of guys that are remarkably righteous, and even among people of the Bible, which there's a lot of pretty big saints in the Bible. Among those people in the Bible that are, you know, almost nothing bad is ever said about them, Job and John the Baptist stick out over and above most people. There's almost nothing negative said in the Word of God about Job and John the Baptist. And yet, we see these two incredibly righteous guys suffer horribly. What's worse, although both men uh, have exemplary lives that stand out among the other saints of the Bible, neither man knows why they are going through the extreme suffering they, they're going through. John the Baptist, he's beheaded and he dies alone in prison, not really understanding his situation at all. And Job is afflicted with the loss of his family, his wealth, his possessions, and his health, and he's at a complete loss to explain why. Both of these situations raise our big question of the, of the day. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? So let's read Mark and Job together and then discuss it. Job chapter 2 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. One day the sons of God came again to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord asked Satan, Where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around it. Then the Lord said to Satan, 
Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. He still retains his integrity even though you incited me against him to destroy him for no good reason. Skin for skin, Satan answered the Lord. A man will give everything he owns in exchange for his life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan. He is in your power. Only spare his life. Though Satan left the Lord's presence and affected Job with terrible boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head, Then Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. You speak as a foolish woman speaks, he told her. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? Throughout all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all this adversity that had happened to him, each of them came from his home. They met together to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they looked from a distance, they could barely recognize him. They wept aloud, and each man tore his robe and threw dust into the air and on his head. Then they sat on the ground with him seven days and nights, but no one spoke a word to him, because they saw that his suffering was very intense. Now I want to say this early on before we get into our next passage. Kudos to Job's three friends. At first, at first they did fantastic When people are going through suffering, they don't always need us to explain it to them or give them some pithy reason why they're going through suffering. These guys did the right thing at first. Now, they're going to totally fall away from that eventually, very soon. Uh, But they did the right thing at first. They sat with him. They were with him. They sympathized. They wept with him. And they were silent. If they had kept that posture through this whole time... I believe God would have richly blessed them. As it is, they were inflicted with um, trouble at the end of the book of Job because they gave him such bad advice. Now we go to Mark chapter 6, verse 1, and then we're going to discuss our suffering question. He left there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is the wisdom that has been given to him, and how are these miracles performed by his hand? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters with us? So they were offended by him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown among his relatives and in in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on an extra shirt. He said to them, 
Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, He's Elijah. Still others said, He's a prophet like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. John had been telling Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in a dance, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. At once she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place. But many saw them leaving and recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, This place is deserted, and it's already late. Send them away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. You give them something to eat, he responded. And they said to him, Should we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaf. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up twelve baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were five thousand men. 
Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them, walking on the sea, and wanted to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke with them and said, Have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to short Gennesaret and anchored there. As they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized him. They hurried throughout that region and began to carry the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he went, into villages, towns, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch just the end of his robe. And everyone who touched it was healed. Back to our big question. Why does... Bad things happen to good people. Why does suffering happen? Now, this is one of the biggest theological questions people ask. It's often cited as one of the main reasons people uh, don't believe in a good God or something like that. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But before we actually delve into this biggest, one of the biggest questions of all, we need to think just for a minute about how we go about answering questions like this. Do we just give an opinion? Do we just quote a single verse or whatever? How do we do Bible theology? Or, you know, how do we go to the Word of God to answer life's biggest questions? And I have three things to remember while we seek answers to our questions from the Bible. If we kind of keep these three things in mind, I think it'll help us find better answers and have more biblical theology. So, point number one. Remember then, rather than just focusing on one single verse, we need to consider the whole counsel of God. Put another way, to answer the question of what happens when we die, we have to attempt to survey all that the Bible has to say about that question and not just one verse. The reason for that is while every Bible passage is true, not every passage in the Bible is the complete truth. For instance, 1 Corinthians 13. You know, the famous love chapter. Paul talks about love and he describes love. And we learn that love is patient and kind. We learn that love is not at all jealous. All of those things are true statements that line up perfectly with the Bible, but they aren't the only true statements about love in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13 is a powerful passage on love, but it doesn't contain the whole truth of the Bible on love. In order to find out the complete teaching of the Bible about love, we got to go to other pages. And for instance, in doing so, we find out in Song of Solomon, chapter 8, that not only is love patient, kind, and long-suffering, but it's also powerful, as powerful as death. That's Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs 8, verse 6. Therefore, in order to have a complete understanding of love from the Bible's perspective, we need the truths in 1 Corinthians 13 and Song of Solomon 8, among, you know, many other passages also. 
Similarly, to gain a biblical understanding of suffering and why it happens, we have to survey the whole Word of God. That's kind of a simple way of talking about the process of developing a biblical theology or a systematic biblical theology. It involves finding out all of what the Bible teaches and reveals about a particular topic. Second thing we need to keep in mind, we need to account for the difference between Old Covenant passages and New Covenant passages. I believe the New Testament must take precedence over the Old Testament and it must interpret it. Because we're not in an Old Covenant age, we're in a New Covenant age. Among many verses, we've already had a whole episode on this, but among many verses that kind of point us in this direction, consider Hebrews 7 verse 18. The previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable for the law perfected nothing, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And then Hebrews 8 verse 7 and verse 13 says this, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete, and what is obsolete in growing old is about to pass away. Now, those verses and others like it, which, for instance, say that we're no longer under the law, but under grace. That doesn't mean the Old Testament is not the word of God or that we don't need it, but it does mean we're not living in Old Testament, Old Covenant times. Those passages were written to the Jewish people at a certain time in their life in a certain context. Now we are living in the age of the New Testament and we are under those commands. So we interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Finally, with humility, prayer, and the leadership of the Spirit, we have to keep returning to the Word of God so that our theology and our understanding doesn't drift from the truth. Because the fact of the matter is, you and I will drift from the truth if we don't keep going back again and again and again to the truth. We should hold our theology with a high degree of humility and repeatedly keep returning to the scriptures to test and confirm that we are walking in the truth. Look, we've got finite minds. We cannot keep the whole counsel of God on a particular topic in our mind, not the best of us. So like an unmoored ship, we humans have a tendency to sort of drift away from truth, and we need to discipline ourselves to return over and over again to the authority of the Word of God. So if we keep all those things in mind, if we focus on getting the whole counsel of God on a particular question, if we focus on the New Testament over the Old Testament as we consider that particular question, and as we keep returning to the Scripture over and over again, I think that helps us to develop a biblical theology on a lot of these questions we're talking about. So, with that understanding in mind, back to our question, why do bad things happen to good people? You might be surprised to know that this particular question has been asked in various forms for literally thousands of years. For instance, Epicurus, he was a Greek philosopher that lived like 300 years before the time of Jesus. And for him, the purpose of philosophy was to attain a happy, tranquil life characterized by peace and freedom from fear and something he called aponia, 
the absence of pain. Supposedly, Epicurus, or one of his followers, helped to formulate what has been called the Epicurean Paradox, or the riddle of Epicurus. And it basically goes like this. Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able to do so? Then he is not omnipotent or all-powerful. Is he able to prevent evil, but not willing to do so? Then he is malevolent, in other words, evil. Is he both able to prevent evil and willing to prevent evil? Then whence cometh evil? In other words, where does evil come from? If God is able to prevent it and willing to prevent it, why do we have evil? Why do we have suffering? Is he neither able nor willing to prevent evil and suffering? Then why call him God? And so that's the Epicurean paradox, the riddle of Epicurus. I think the Bible has a superb and complete answer to that riddle. But my goodness, has that particular question confused so many people? And in answering this question, I do want to point out what I believe is a fundamental disagreement between Epicurean theology and biblical theology. Epicurus sought to avoid all forms of suffering and fear, while the Bible promises us the experience of suffering. John 16, 33, you will have suffering in this world, says Jesus. It's a promise. The word suffering there is the same word that uh, is often translated tribulation. And not only that, the Bible commands us to walk in suffering. For instance, there's other passages too, but 2 Timothy 2, 3, Paul says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus. So, we're going to have suffering. We're supposed to share in it. That's part of the call, and the Bible is very realistic about it. Some people read Epicurus for the first time in modern at how uh, marvel at how modern and, and updated he sounds. And honestly, in a lot of ways, his philosophy is pretty similar to modern atheism, although I would say it's, you know, in, in a lot of ways less sophisticated. However, I find Epicurus's ideas uh, lacking and honestly Pollyanna-ish. Living a life that seeks to avoid suffering is like living a life that seeks to avoid air or death or things that smell bad. It's unrealistic and it's impossible. While many Christians and preachers, especially the ones you see on TV, have a Pollyanna-ish type theology that is really quite shallow and doesn't reckon well at all with suffering, the Bible itself does not approach death and suffering in an unrealistic, pie-in-the-sky, overly optimistic way. But rather, the Bible talks about suffering and death in a gritty, realistic way, but with hope. Further, the Bible speaks of suffering frequently, not rarely. So, our question, but before we get too deep into an answer, we need to make some adjustments to it. The question is, why do bad things happen to good people? But the problem is, it's a little bit flawed from a biblical sense. Yes, John the Baptist was a great human being, the greatest human being born in history, according to Jesus. Yes, Job was a great guy also. The Bible, I think in Job chapter 1 says, he was the most righteous man in all of the East. So, great guys, but... Since Paul tells us in Romans 3.10 that there's not even a single 
really righteous person that has ever lived, we know that Job and John the Baptist and everybody else, they're not good. All have sinned, including John the Baptist and Job, and certainly including me many millions of times over. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the question, why does bad things happen to good people? Well, let's adjust it just the ever so slightly. Why do bad things happen to seemingly good people? Or even better, why do bad things happen to comparatively good people? In other words, why do bad things sometimes happen to the best of us? And today we'll focus just a little bit more time on part one of that question. Why do bad things happen? Why is there suffering in the world? I mean, the Bible obviously shows that God is powerful enough to prevent it. Why doesn't he? Why do we have suffering in the world? And I think the biggest part of the answer to that question goes all the way back to Genesis 3.16, the fall in the garden. God says to the woman after the man and the woman sin, he says to her, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear bear children in anguish. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. That's Genesis three sixteen through 19. And just re- yesterday, we read Romans five twelve, which says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all men because all sinned. So, All suffering has its root in the fall in the Garden of Eden. Sin causes suffering. But why do comparatively good people suffering? Why is there so much tragedy in the world? Well, it's time to dig a little deeper into the teachings of the Bible on suffering and why suffering happens. As we do that, and we're going to pick up most of this tomorrow, three things we need to see about the Bible's teaching on suffering. Number one, Bible does not shy away from talking directly about suffering. Honestly, you cannot spend much time studying the Bible and 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 not encounter passages on suffering, and you can't spend much time studying suffering in the Bible and walking away thinking you'll be immune to it. The Bible's chock full of promises that we're going to suffer and nobody is immune to it. Not Jesus, not Paul, not Peter, not King David, not Abraham, not Sarah, nobody. The best and the worst, all in the Bible, suffer. Thing number two to keep in mind, uh, the characteristic of the Bible's teaching on suffering. The Bible does not promise freedom from suffering for Christians for or for the most devout followers of Jesus. Instead, it promises just the opposite. You will have suffering, says Jesus. Now, 
the third characteristic of the Bible's teaching on suffering. The Bible gives a lot of different reasons for why suffering happens, and it doesn't always seek to offer explanations for why seemingly good people are going through bad things. The prophet Jeremiah, which is the longest book in the Bible, is about a faithful prophet that never has one single obvious conversion or moment of obvious fruitfulness in his ministry. Why? Why is Jeremiah's life so difficult and lacking in fruit? It's never fully explained why. And yet, Jeremiah is quite obviously faithful to the end. Job, again, a whole book dedicated and devoted to suffering, and it's about a good man that suffers horrifically, and Job never knows why. Even after why, even after talking to God at the end of the book, he never understands why he suffered. The call of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 1 through 4 indicates his ministry is going to be a ministry of frustration and suffering. And that's the fourth longest book in the Bible. And for now, that's enough for a beginning answer about suffering. The Bible doesn't shy away from the fact that we are going to have suffering. If you live a life of complete non-suffering, then that's actually a better question. Why is your life so free from suffering is a question that actually does challenge the teaching of the Bible on suffering. But I don't know that I've ever met a person who's asked that question, who's ever said, oh my gosh, my life is so easy. That doesn't make any sense. Why is my life so easy and free of pain? Tomorrow, we're going to continue to grapple with the question of why bad things happen to seemingly good people. But if you'll give me just another couple of minutes, I want to close with a testimony or a story from uh, Pastor David Platt. He wrote the best-selling book, Radical. He pastored uh, the church at Brook Hills in Birmingham, Alabama, and he was the head of the Southern Baptist International Mission Board for a time. Now he's at McLean Bible Church in Washington, D.C., and it's this massive church that he pastors. The story I'm about to tell you is from a sermon he preached at the Church of Brook Hills in 2008, and it sort of tells the story of how he got to be pastoring the Church of Brook Hills, even though it was one of the biggest churches in Birmingham, Alabama at the time, and he was just in his 20s. And this is his story. He says, I was thinking this morning, even as I was preparing and looking over the text of Job again, about the purpose of God in suffering, even in my speaking in front of you about the purpose of God in suffering. He says it was almost three years ago to the day, this was in 2008, when Heather and I were living in New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina came and put our house completely underwater, about 10 feet of water in our one-story house there, and our world turned upside down. I remember us sitting at a shelter in central Louisiana, and we'd set up a video projector where we were all showing the news on the side of a wall. And it was one of those times after Katrina had happened when they were doing helicopter flyovers in the city of New Orleans. And I'd been telling Heather, my wife, Heather, I'm sure our house is fine. Everything's okay. You know, giving her all the assurance that I had no authority to give whatsoever, just what you say during those times. And we see this helicopter fly over our neighborhood and we see this gas station and we think, well, that gas station looks familiar. And it's about two or three blocks up from where our house was. And it was up to the top of the building with water. And it was one of those times when Heather and I lock eyes and we realize our life has just turned upside down. And so we're not going going to be able to come back home for a while. 
forever, really, as it came to be, because a few months after this, I start filling in preaching with this church in Birmingham, Alabama, and they invite me to come back a few times, and long story short, here I am. That's the picture of the purpose of God. Three years ago, I never could have imagined as I was sitting and looking at our house underwater that tonight I'd be talking to you about the purpose of God in suffering as the pastor of this church in Birmingham, Alabama. He's got a purpose. It's sometimes different, but it's always good, never oppressive, always good. And that indeed is one of the reasons why suffering sometimes happens. God often takes our suffering and propels us to new levels and new places and new callings through it. That's not the case for every time, but God is a God who seems to have this incredible ability to take suffering and turn it around into fruitful growing times that end up being something we would ourselves choose to go through if we could see the end results of it. Like I said, tomorrow we will speak more on this most important topic. But for now, we're going to close out by reading Genesis chapter 35 and Romans chapter 6. God said to Jacob, get up, go to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his family and all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. We must get up and go to Bethel. I will build an altar there to the God who answered me in the day of distress. He has been with me everywhere I have gone. Then they gave Jacob all their foreign gods and their earrings, and Jacob hid them under the oak near Shechem. When they set out, a terror from God came over the cities around them, and they did not pursue Jacob's sons. So Jacob and all who were with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. Jacob built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God had revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Deborah, the one who had nursed and raised Rebekah, died and was buried under the oak south of Bethel. So Jacob named it Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again after he returned from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, and you will no longer be named Jacob, but your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, indeed an assembly of nations, will come from you, and kings will descend from you. I will give you to you the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, and I will give the land to your future descendants. Then God withdrew from him at the place where he had spoken to him. Jacob set up a marker at the place where he had spoken to him, a stone marker. He poured a drink offering on it and anointed it with oil. Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. They set out from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and her labor was difficult. During her difficult labor, the midwife said to her, Don't be afraid, for you have another son. With her last breath, for she was dying, she named him Benoni but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Jacob set up a marker on her grave. It is the marker at Rachel's grave still today. Israel set out again and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard about it. Jacob had twelve sons, 
Leah's sons were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. Rachel's sons were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Rachel's slave Bilhah were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Leah's slave Zilpah were Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Jacob came to his father's Isaac at Mamre in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years. He took his last breath and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. His sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Romans chapter 6 verse 1. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires, and do not offer any part of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over, and having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things you're now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you've been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. It is my hope that the Word of God was edifying and strengthening to you today. May it bless you, God bless you, and keep you. Godspeed.